So my name is Matthew Roberts. I'm the minister of Trinity Church, York, um, which is a sister church of this, of this one. Um, so if ever you're in York on a Sunday, do come and visit us. We'd love to, uh, love to have you there. Um, and I know some of you have been there in the past, some of you regularly, which is, is also lovely. Um, I'm going to read from God's word. Um, now, this is, uh, as Zach says, an interruption to your series on characters from the nativity, although I hope that by the end of my sermon we might realise it's less of an interruption than you might think. But we're going to read from Luke chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 25, printed in the service sheet. So do follow it there, or if you want to look it up in the Bible, that is also good. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Well, this is the word of God. Let's ask for God's help as we hear it. Father God, thank you for your word. We praise you that it is a double-edged sword which cuts to the division of joints and marrow. Uh, We pray that you will cut us with the sword of your word this morning and enable us to hear what it is that you have to say to us, that we may know how much we need a saviour and that we may receive the Saviour whom you have sent. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm from York, much rougher than Leeds. So let me tell you a story. It's not a true story, but it will help you. So uh, in the rough streets of York, a man was walking home from church, dark December evening. Uh, On the way, he's mugged, and uh, they stole his bag and his coat and his trendy hoodie, and... um, they beat him up pretty badly and, uh, and left him in the gutter, barely conscious. Um, now, this being York, shortly afterwards, a, uh, a, a, an Anglican bishop 
was walking past just out of the minster um, uh, wearing his robes and he didn't want to get his robes dirty so he, uh, he, he walked to the other side of the road so as not to get involved and uh, stay nice and clean then uh, uh, half an hour later uh, one of our uh, one of our local MPs walked past you can choose which you dislike more out of Tories and Labour and it will be one of those we've got one of each in York so you can do that um, and uh, the MP saw, saw him and also didn't want to get involved uh, and so walked past the other side of the road and then a car came driving down the road and it stopped and a man got out and as he walked under a street light and the light fell on his face it became clear he was a well-known militant atheist he wrote columns for The Guardian on uh, uh, how Christians should be banned from university campuses and, uh, and how um, abortion rights needed to be advanced very strongly and uh, how churches which taught biblical morality should be closed. And this man stopped, got out of his car and went over to the gutter, picked up the bleeding Christian man in the gutter and tore his own shirt to make bandages, heaved him onto the back seat of his car, not worrying about the dirt on the upholstery, and took him to a private hospital and paid the bill. Now, that, of course, is my version of the story of the Good Samaritan. It's one of his most, Jesus' most famous bits of teaching. And, um, uh, and th- th- what we need to realise is that this is designed to get under our skin in a very subtle and powerful way. We normally miss the power of the story of the Good Samaritan because we have forgotten what Samaritan meant to Jesus' hearers. If this story doesn't make you feel somewhere between outraged and mortified, you haven't heard it. What Jesus is saying to us is eternal life does not come to people like you as easily as you think it does. Indeed, it doesn't come easily at all. Indeed, eternal life doesn't come the way we think it does. Rather, it comes by receiving a rescuer whom naturally we despised. That The basic starting point of Jesus' story is that it is simple to earn eternal life. Do you see the lawyer asking the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, passing over the very oddness of doing something to inherit. He doesn't mean inherit, does he? He means earn eternal life. Uh, you don't do anything to inherit something, you just have to have a rich dad. He said, what well, he means, what shall I do to earn it? And Jesus' answer is simple. What's written in the law? How do you read it? The man answers exactly correctly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself gives exactly that answer in summarizing what the law is uh, in other places in the Gospels. It's perfectly simple to earn eternal life. Nothing complicated about it. You need to keep the law of God and the law of God is that he is. You are to love him and love your neighbor. And so Jesus answers, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, Jesus is telling the truth. The law of God is what God's righteousness requires of man. All that is necessary, all that we need. Um, But, of course, that doesn't settle and finish the question. The man wants to justify himself. 
verse 29. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? He knows who God is, and he's okay. He seems to have got that licked, he thinks, in loving God. But he thinks you can't love everyone, can you? So you need to know, who is it that I'm supposed to love? And in response to that question, Jesus tells the story. The man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, as Jesus tells the story... Uh, The man and probably all the other hearers who are listening are nodding along quite happily with the first two people who come along. The the priest who comes. Well, what are priests like? They're obsessed with rituals and cleanliness. They're people who are all into the religion and not into real real stuff. Those bishops, aren't they awful? Now, um, before you think I'm having a pop at the Anglican Church, in a Presbyterian church like ours, um, uh, and yours here, uh, every every minister is also a bishop, so I include myself in this. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, of course, that's what you expect. Those awful clergy... um, they all show and they don't really care. Uh, then the Levite, the man full of his own importance, like the MP in my version. Yeah, absolutely. We know that they're interested in lining their pockets and in being important, but we wouldn't expect them to be concerned with real things. Maybe you think I'm too cynical, but lots of people would, of course, agree. Uh, now, uh, so the crowd are probably nodding along, but then Jesus does something totally unexpected. The crowd are expecting the third character is going to be a humble, ordinary Jew who's going to be the example of neighborly love uh, that we want to see. Uh, Who's going to see that the man in the gutter is his neighbor. Uh, and, um, And of course it isn't. It's a Samaritan. We've got so used to the idea of a good Samaritan from this story that we, we, we often just don't realize that uh, that is a contradiction. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan in the minds of the Jews. They, they were the remnants of the old northern kingdom. They were all mixed up and interbred with pagan nations. They had a mangled version of the Bible that they, uh, that they read. Their beliefs were a degenerate and blasphemous version of, uh, of the true worship of God. And that their great national ambition was to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. You know, these were people who hated the true religion, the true worship of God idolatrous and immoral. That's why I chose my militant atheist guardian columnist for my version of the story. If we're going to hear the story, this needs to be the kind of person who wants Christianity destroyed. Someone who's spent a lifetime working to undermine Christians and to discredit the living God. That is who gets off the donkey or out of the car and comes to help and who binds, heals, transports, gets safe, provides in this sacrificial way. Now, there are two twists that Jesus has introduced and we need to hear them both if we're going to hear the story. And basically I have two points to the sermon. It's a bit unusual structure for sermon, but okay, I now have two points going from now. Here, Here are the two things that you need to get. You are not nearly as righteous as you think. You are not nearly as righteous as you think. You see, the man who loves his neighbor as himself is someone whom you hate. That's Jesus' point. The man who loves his neighbor as himself is someone whom you hate. What Jesus has done is to bring to the surface that this man who asked him the question has a heart which dwelling in it is a loathing 
for the nation, which are his closest neighbours. As, as Jesus says, it's a Samaritan in verse 33, and, and makes the Samaritan the example of love. This man's response is, what? Go and do likewise, says Jesus. What, what, go and be like one of them? Are you comparing me to one of them, telling me that I've got a love like, like they do? And what Jesus is showing is that loving is an awful lot harder than you think. It's as if the man's asked for tips on how to tidy up his wallpaper and Jesus has just stripped it off and shown a mass of rot and woodworm underneath it. You see, earning life, eternal life is easy if you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, let's just ask that question. How, how, how much do you love the fundamentalist Muslims? How much do you love the suicide bombers? How much do you love the uh, anti-Christian campaigners? How much do you love those who, uh, who, who, uh, uh, who campaign for more abortion? How much do you love uh, those who want to see churches closed, Christians excluded from, excluded from schools and universities? And what's, what's more, do you love as much as they do? You see, do you love them? And if your answer is, I don't know, then Jesus has made his point, hasn't he? You see, loving is a lot harder than you think. This man wanted to make sure he'd done everything required of him, wanted to make sure he'd ticked all of the boxes, and Jesus reaches into his heart and into your heart and mine and says, well, what, what about this? What about this thing that's lurking here? It looks to me like you haven't even started loving your neighbour. You see, we need to stop thinking we're such lovely people. We like to think that we're 96% Christians, don't we? My dad tells the story of being, uh, getting 96% in a test at school and his teacher writing it on the bottom. John has failed by 4% to get the 100% of which he's fully capable, um, which I think that's the quality of school teacher we need in this day and age. Um, uh, but, but we're all like that, aren't we? We're 96%, I just need 4% more. And Jesus is saying, you're not a 96% question. You're not a Christian. You're not even a 4% Christian. You're way into the negative numbers. The man thought he just needed to tick a few more boxes on keeping the law, and Jesus has totally dismantled his understanding of the law. It's not a list that you can hope to satisfy. It's not a standard that, you know, given a decent sort of character and a little bit of hard work, you can bring yourself up to. Now, what Jesus has done is to say, you're not at square one. Lurking in your heart are all sorts of things that mean you don't need tips to help you keep the law. You need rescue for your massive failure to even want to keep the law. Well, that's the first twist. You need a saviour. But here's the second twist. Here's the second twist. Just think what, what, what it's like for the man as he listens to this story. Remember his question. Look at verse 29. Who is my neighbour? So Jesus starts telling the story, and the man is expecting, quite rightly, that he is going to feature in the story. There will be a character in the story that the man, is, that the lawyer, is supposed to identify with. And that's true for us as well as we listen to it. Okay, that we, we know we're going to appear in this story somewhere. 
Um, and uh, and so first of all, first of all, comes the priest and he walks by on the other side and the man thinks that's right no I'm not like that that's not me and then comes the Levite and he walks past on the other side and the uh, and the man thinks I no I'm not like that so that's not like me so now we've got the third one and the man is thinking right next it's going to be my character next next I'm going to I'm about to enter this story uh, as Jesus shows me uh, what it looks like uh, to be the kind of person who loves his neighbor right but who is the third character? It's the Samaritan. It's the godless, false religion believing, true God opposing, wicked man. And so Jesus' questioner is left thinking, well, that's not me either. I'm not a Samaritan. Where am I in this story after all? And here then is the twist. Remember the question, verse 29, who is my neighbor? And look what Jesus asks in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? If you've known this story before, as I guess many of us have, have you ever noticed that question seems to be the wrong way around? It, it, should it not say, which of these three recognized that the man in the, in the gutter was his neighbor? The man who fell among the robbers, shouldn't it be that? That makes sense, wouldn't it? But it's not that, is it? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who is the neighbor to the man who is bleeding by the side of the road? In other words, what Jesus is saying to him is, you are not the noble helper looking for the right noble tasks to do. You are the bleeding pulp in the gutter, waiting for someone to rescue you. And that must have taken the man and the crowd totally by surprise. And so it should us. Jesus is saying, you came to me asking a question because you thought you were just a few ticks away from earning eternal life. And now Jesus shows him, you, you don't understand where you are before God and before his law until you realize that you are a bleeding pulp by the side of the road. You need a savior. Jesus has not only uncovered the depths of hatred in his own heart, but he's shown him that he's in a totally different position before the law than he thought he was and before God. Now, once we've noticed that, then maybe you'll start to notice some of the other funny details in this story. Why traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho? It's a very specific road to choose. There's no indication in the surrounding narrative that that's where they are. But why does he pick that road? Uh, why, um, uh, why the inn? Why the innkeeper? Why does he feature in the story? Why does the Samaritan go away and come back? Well... Why, why that road? Jerusalem is the city of God on top of a hill in the high hill country. Jericho is the, the wicked city of the Canaanites, very low down by the River Jordan. It was destroyed when the Israelites came into the Promised Land. They destroyed Jericho and they basically, the next few hundred years, was effectively the story of them going up the hill to Jerusalem. But the history of Israel really, ever since God gave them the law which the lawyer is supposed to be an expert in, is that they have constantly slid down the hill from Jerusalem back to Jericho. 
The story of Israel has been abandoning the worship of the one true God and sliding into the godless, wicked idol worship that Jericho represented. Israel's the nation God's given his law of love to, and they've abandoned it and become so ruined by sin that they can do nothing to help themselves. And now do you see the story then reads quite differently, doesn't it? Once you get that, that there's, there's something going on here, isn't there? Old Testament religion represented by the priest, it cannot help you. The best sacrifices on earth will leave you lying in the gutter. It'll walk past on the other side. It'll give you no help at all. What about the Levites? The Levites, their particular job is to teach the law to the people of Israel. But being taught what God requires, love God and love your neighbor, will not get you out of the gutter. It'll walk by on the other side. It'll leave you lying there. The best moral instruction on earth will not help you. No, you are a half-dead sinner, battered and bruised by the hatreds of your own heart. And Jesus has exposed those and now says to you, your only hope is if a man whom you despise comes and lifts you up and binds and treats your wounds and he takes you somewhere safe. And having placed you there where you will be looked after, promises he will come back to provide everything for you. You see, the picture, the story's got a lot more going on than you thought. A man you despise? Well, what was, G, what was this lawyer's attitude to Jesus? Verse 25, he came to put him to the test. He didn't really want Jesus' teaching anyway. He didn't respect him. He's trying to catch him out. He despised Jesus, and so do we. You see, we may have forgotten the meaning of the word Samaritan, but we've also forgotten the meaning of the word stable. The meaning of the word stable. Well, actually, that's not a biblical word. The meaning of the word manger, a feeding trough for animals. Jesus is a man who came from the most disgraceful and revolting background. And if we've forgotten what Samaritan mean and what manger mean, we've also forgotten what cross means, crucifixion. The most disgraceful, disgusting thing that can happen to anyone. Your saviour is a man whom you would never want to be saved by. And that is what Jesus is saying. Your saviour is this disgraceful and disgraced man born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, crucified in Jerusalem. And he is the one who gets off his donkey or out of his car and who picks you up and binds up your wounds. He's the one who can save you from your dreadful failure to love God and your neighbor. He's the one who, having picked you up and bound you up and forgiven you for your sin and placed his spirit in your heart, entrusts you to his church for safekeeping and promises he will return to save you. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop thinking that we are only a few ticks short of what God requires. We need to realize we are the bleeding wreck in the gutter. And we need to realize that our one hope is the man whom God has sent, whom we never would have expected, who at huge cost to himself 
has come to save us. The one man who ever truly loved God and his neighbor, as he should do, and who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Let me then end by applying this to us in a few ways. Uh, Perhaps you're here. I don't know you all. Perhaps you're here or perhaps you're watching online, as uh, some of you are, I know. Um, And you're here out of curiosity. You Basically, you're skeptical about Jesus. And uh, and if that's you, I want to sound very grateful that you've joined us today for this reason. I wonder whether Jesus has caught you out. That you came to see what kind of moral tips he would give you whether he's got anything useful to say. And what Jesus has done in this passage is to show you who you really are and that he wants to lift you up and make you new. If that is you, let me urge you to believe him, to let him do so. Everything else on earth that looks like it might help will leave you in the gutter. But he will bind up your wounds and make you safe and pay the bill. Perhaps that's not you. Perhaps you're the kind of person who is very concerned about any kind of moral outrages in society. Perhaps you're very concerned about what's going on in our nation, the way families are being destroyed, the way that uh, the way that babies are being killed. I mentioned abortion earlier on. Maybe you're very concerned about uh, the justice of what is happening here or elsewhere in the world or about, um, uh, about racial harmony and all those kind of things. Well, so you should be concerned about those things. The law of God matters. But you must understand that you are not and cannot be the saviour. You are the one in need of rescuing. Yes, Christians should be concerned for those things. Yes, we should do what we can to make them better. But we must never think that we have it in us to put the world right, to be the kind of neighbours who are going to do such good to others that we will justify ourselves. There is no space in Jesus's kingdom for those who think they are rescuers, only for those who realise they're in desperate need of the one rescuer, the one saviour, Jesus Christ. So then don't look for the wrong saviour. Don't try to justify yourself as if scrupulous self-discipline and moral effort can help you. No, there is only one who can. There is only one who will stop and save you. Only one who can give you what you need. Your heart lies open before him. He has exposed your own inability to help yourself. But he can. And if you let him, he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. We do praise you for this extraordinary story which uh, peels open the layers of our hearts, exposes the depth of the hatreds that lie there, and so wonderfully points us to the one who can save us. We ask, our God, that you will mercifully enable us humbly to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you sent him from heaven in order to be our saviour. We praise you that he was born in poverty. He lived in obscurity. He died in disgrace. And yet in those things, 
He was doing exactly what we needed in order for him to save us. Father God, make us trust in the Lord Jesus alone and not in our own righteousness. And we pray that he will indeed come back and pay for us all that we need, that we may live with him and with you in the power of the Holy Spirit forever. In Jesus' name, amen.